I want to say thank you for the invitation to be your guest preacher today. Not everybody gets invited to come preach here. And I've been looking forward to it all week, and I have some of my family with me, my husband Chuck, <laughs> and his look-alike Tim, and Jesse, his wife, and our grandson who will be born in a month. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to start with a prayer of illumination, so let's go to God in prayer. Spirit of the living God, kindle in us a passion to hear your word. Silence in us the voices that are not your own. And inspire in us the hope of new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture today is from the book of Ephesians, and I feel like there's probably a page number if you're using your Bible where you can look it up. It's from chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And these words are, at the beginning of Ephesians, said from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given a gift, given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. Now when it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended in the lowest parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some pastors and teachers, some prophets, some evangelists, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. There are 10,000 sermons in this beautiful passage, and I have preached maybe three or four of them. But what intrigued me all week was this phrase, we must no longer be like children. 
Because isn't it Jesus who said we're supposed to all be like children? Remember in the book of Matthew, where Matthew reports that the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus called a child to the center of the group. And he said, Look at this child. Truly, I tell you, if you, unless you change and become like this child, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. The image of Jesus caring for children, the image of Jesus lifting up their faith, is a beloved one. At every age, indeed, childlike faith is lifted up as desirable, as something we should try to be like. A friend of mine is preaching at another church a series this summer on childlike faith, like wonder and playfulness and trust. So then what could the apostle possibly mean when the apostle says, we must no longer be like children? Doesn't that go against Jesus? Maybe it's a paraphrase to say, God wants you to all grow up. Well, growing up in our passage today is not really about putting aside those childlike qualities, those desirable characteristics of childlike faith, and it's not about chronological age. And it's not about getting a job so you can finally support yourself. Grow up. It's about something different. It's about growing into Christ, growing up into Christ, and even more than that, growing up into the body of Christ with other people. This kind of growing up, it's like growing up in a big family, a really big family, way beyond the size of the number of people in this room. It's about sharing ourselves and our gifts so that the whole family grows into Christ for the good of the whole body, which is called then to be a blessing to the world. Ten years ago, God began to surprise me, surprise me indeed with some teachings about this kind of growing up, something I never, ever expected. Now, when I was a little girl, I grew up in the Lutheran Church, St. Mark's Lutheran Church. Any other Lutherans in the room? Past Lutherans. We learned a lot about the Bible. We memorized Luther's catechism, just like my father had many, many years before. Well, after high school, I went on to college at Stetson. I got an English degree, and then I went on to law school where I met my sweetheart of law school, Chuck, the very first week. When we came back and began our law practices, church was not on our radar. Not that we didn't go sometimes for holidays, but it wasn't, it was, we were concentrating on our work, I guess you could say, and our new marriage, and then when we got pregnant with our first child, we began church shopping as maybe some of you have. I hate to call it that, but we, we visited different churches of all kinds. And finally, we went to South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church, a few blocks from our house, where the pastor was someone some of you know, the Reverend Dr. Bob Smith. Our whole family enjoyed this community. We all did things there. Chuck and I became officers. We were involved in lots of ministries and missions. Still, there were times we attended more and times where maybe a whole summer could go by and you wouldn't see us. Well, in 2004, during my second time on the church session, I was co-chair of a big anniversary event 
It had to do with a, a big uh, milestone in the church history. And I was asked to preach one Sunday. And I took it on myself because I can't help myself. I love to write. I wrote the book of the church history, and it was published. The next year, at the invitation of a lawyer friend, I began taking yoga classes. So this may seem unconnected. But I guess that friend knew I needed to calm down a little bit. And maybe it was good for my health. And I started, and I enjoyed it, and later I realized that was definitely the work of the Spirit. Not long after that, our pastor, Vince Kolb, invited us to a breakfast. It was a fundraiser. I know all of you love to go to fundraisers, but Chuck and I don't really like it that much. So we accepted simply to be nice, pure and simple. Your pastor asks you to do something. Maybe this has happened to you. Okay, I'll go. Well, when the day of the breakfast came, I was totally not in the mood. As all important lawyers are, we had so many important things to do at the office, and I regretted sorely my agreement to go. But it was too late to send a check. I had to go. It was at the Omni, and there were a lot of tables. I suspect there were at least a few people who were there in 2005 at this breakfast. And there was a presentation. There was a great video with music. There was two students giving testimony. And then the president stood up, Dr. Laura Mendenhall, and she began to speak. She said that, well, what I remember, how much she loved the church, how much the church needed pastors, especially little churches, especially rural churches, and how people didn't have money to go. So we really need to help out. And she said there's donation cards that are being passed out, and um, maybe there's blanks on there, and you could check $1,000, you could write 5000 10000 or maybe you want to go to seminary yourself. Well, uh, I'm sure she was being funny. It was funny. But one of the members of my church looked at me with a gleam in his eye and started going like this. And I laughed, of course, and that was that. We took our donation cards home to pray about later. And I'm not sure we ever gave a donation. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> well, the next morning was a regular work day. For more than a year, I'll admit I'd lost my zeal for what I did at work. I don't think clients could tell, but I sure knew. And so one of my coping mechanisms was to take the long way to work. And when you live five minutes from work, you can imagine what a challenge that might be. So I headed down River Road, this is River Oaks Road, to River Road. Y'all are picturing that, this now. They just reduced the speed limit to 20 miles an hour the other day, but I was going slower than 20. Kept going, Costa Bridge, finally, you have to go a little faster, over the bridge, to the top of the bridge, where I heard this voice saying, Sandra, I want you to go to seminary. Well, I was pretty startled, as this idea had never for one second entered my head. Never. I kept on going. I turned on Forsyth. I went in our garage. I went up to the office. I opened the email, and I sent an email to my patient husband, Chuck. And it said, on the way to work, at the top of the bridge, God called me to go to seminary. 
I went to the kitchen, I got a cup of coffee, I came back, and there was an email back, so I opened it. And it said, from this time on, I am driving you to work. Well, that night, you can imagine the dinner conversation, and for many weeks, we struggled with that call, uh, because I don't usually hear voices in my head, and we tried to decide whether it was a midlife crisis, like, you know, some people get cars or open a bed and breakfast, or whether it was just that I had been bored and was looking for any way out. And so we prayed, and I I definitely did a lot of crying. I went to a lot of yoga. Eventually, we entered the formal process with the presbytery, and I came under their care, and I took tests, like psychological tests, to make sure, and vocational tests, and there was a go-ahead. But there was still a huge obstacle, actually two. One was I'd be away from Chuck for three years, almost totally, full-time, in Atlanta. The other was way more, and that was that I would not be a lawyer. This is going to sound silly, I know, but that was all I'd ever done since I was 24. That was the schooling I started when I was 21. It's all I knew. I was completely involved in cases and colleagues and the bar activities and trying to help the justice system be better. So I kept thinking, if I'm not a lawyer, who am I? If I'm not a lawyer... Is the answer nothing? What will fill in the blank? I never could come up with an answer. I felt like I was maybe making a huge mistake, but I went anyway because I could not go. Well, the transition was very hard. Uh, Chuck and another helper drove me there and let me off like a kid at college, and I stayed in a dorm in a room, a single room, and I was very, very homesick at first. If you've ever been homesick, like really, really bad, that's what it felt like. And no one, um, hardly anyone, was my age. Most people were in their mid-twenties. And no one, no one cared I was a lawyer at all. If anything, it was met with suspicion. So I would not mention it anymore unless we were giving this what have you done in the past thing. By the second part of my first year, I felt better. Things got better. You know, things get better. And I can truly say that going to seminary was the, until after seminary, was the best three years of my entire life. So transformational, so powerful. I was able to go on study trips to Mexico, to Israel, to the Middle East. And then afterwards, it became more and more joyous. I was able to serve a church as its pastor for three years, an interim pastor, and overlapping with that, and now uh, I get to be responsible for helping 60 churches with all sorts of things. I get to go into churches and, and talk and preach and meet people. And so it has been so wonderful, and ironically, because all my work has been part-time, I've also been called back to mediate cases, and now I teach yoga. Imagine that. Chuck has been a great partner, and my whole family has been a great support in all of this. 
And so in the last few minutes, I want to lift up two aspects of growing in Christ that are woven deeply into our scripture and into this experience that I thank you so much for letting me share. The first one is about our identity. Identity. Remember when I said I couldn't imagine? I know it sounds so ridiculous, but I couldn't imagine what I would be if I wasn't what I'd been for 25 years. Well, that dissolved. That worry dissolved. That fear completely dissolved. It took giving up my identity to realize that under it all, we are not our occupation, doctor, lawyer, a teacher, retired person, um, so many things. We are not those things. And we're not the stereotype people put on us, whatever that is, that neighbor next door, that cranky man down the street. We're not those things. We're not the role we play in our family, mama, grandma, daddy. We all belong to Christ. As this passage so beautifully says in so many words, we all belong to Christ. There's one, one, and that's Christ. So as I continue to redefine my identity, I finally say now, although it's, I don't say it at a cocktail party necessarily, I'm a disciple of Christ. That's what I am. I'm I'm a disciple of Christ, so it's the same whether I'm mediating a case or in the pulpit or helping a church with a crisis or being somebody's grandma. I'm a disciple of Christ. And second, I'm convinced, and this is getting more and more countercultural, that growing into Christ means growing with a family, in a family. And I don't necessarily mean, although I do mean your church family, I mean bigger, the body of Christ, which the apostle describes so beautifully as joined and knit together as each part is working properly, promoting the whole body's growth and building itself up in love. So a great example of this is the stark contrast between law school and seminary. Some of you will recognize one or the other. In law school orientation, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were told, look to the right. Look to the left. These are the people who may not be here because it's so hard here and they will be weeded out. And the dean said it was such glee, like this is such a marvelous thing that people are going to be weeded out and be gone. And in our seminary orientation, they said, look to the right, look to the left. These are the people who are going to support each other These are the people who are going to lift you up when you're falling down. These are the people you are going to help, whether it hurts you academically or otherwise. These are your people. And in my first semester in Greek school, I was called out by the Greek professor for asking questions so I would get a better grade on the test, and it was so obvious and I deserved it. And I was so mad, I called Chuck and just probably said a curse word about her, but I deserved it because I found that self-interest and competition are really hard to put aside even for me now, and it's really hard to put it aside even in the church. For example, and please don't hate me, what if instead of saying, I don't feel fed at church these days, what if we said, 
I need to find somebody to feed at church these days. So now, and you probably knew it was coming, take a look to the right and to the left. These are the children of God, your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. These are your people. And this is true whether you're a visitor or a longtime member. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian who spent the last days of his life in a German prison camp, said this, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. So how might God be calling you to be nurtured by the body of Christ? And how might God be calling you to share your gifts with the body of Christ? And all for the glory of God. Hallelujah. Amen.